Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I'm your host, Laura Rutterford, a physiotherapist, Pilates instructor, and fellow hippie. We're here to talk about all things hip dysplasia, to build a community, to support and guide each other through the ups and the downs. If you like the podcast, please share it and rate it. It really helps others to find it too. If you have any questions or feedback, please email me at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. I also just wanted to let you know that I am now on Patreon with my library of hip-friendly Pilates and mobility classes, my Stand Stronger program, and lots more useful hip-friendly tools. If you want to have a look at this, check this out at patreon.com forward slash help for hip dysplasia, or you can find it in the link in my Instagram bio or on my website. Let's get on with the show. Welcome everybody to the Help for Hip Dysplasia podcast. I have the absolute privilege this week of introducing you to Dr. Charles T. Price. Now, Dr. Charles Price is the director of the International Hip Dysplasia Institute and has been an absolute legend in the hip dysplasia world. So I'm very, very proud to introduce uh, Dr. Charles Price. Hello. Thank you, Laura. This is great. And what you're doing is so important. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, and, uh, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Me too. Um, I also want to introduce um, to everybody Natalie Caro. And, and Natalie has been absolutely incredible about helping us to coordinate this conversation, um, but is also the program director for the International Hip Dysplasia Institute. So um, hi, Natalie, I want to say hello from everybody and thank you also for the work that you do. <laughs> Okay, so I'm so excited to be able to bring you so many questions from the community this week. Um, I put out a post on social media asking for questions and we were absolutely inundated with questions coming in from everywhere around the world. So thank you so much for taking the time to answer those for us today. Um, I wonder if you might be able to just give us a little bit of background um, in your history with hip dysplasia and what's brought you to this moment being the director for the International Hip Dysplasia Institute. Well, that's a longer story that we probably have time for, but um, it's it's been a pleasant story. And I think, uh, you know, that I've had a long history as a academic or children's orthopedic surgeon with an interest in hip dysplasia and um, had a patient from a, a well-known comedian in the United States, uh, Larry the Cable Guy, and his child uh, was, was sent to me for treatment. And we had a very successful result. And his wife said she wanted to do something to, to make a difference because uh, she first time she heard about it, it was about dogs. You know, she didn't know that people got hip dysplasia and there wasn't a website and there wasn't a lot of, it was just a mess, really. She'd been told one thing by different doctors, and I'm sure that still goes on, that there's a lot of confusion and um, questioning. And so they wanted to make a difference. And I told them, I said, look, I said, this is... Uh, you know, a little bit of research money is, is going to help, but it's not going to make a big difference because there's no implant company working on this. There's no pharmaceuticals for it. It's not life-threatening, so it doesn't get a lot of attention from grants. And so it's going to take a really colossal donation to really do a deep dive into hip dysplasia and make a difference. And they stepped up and made a, a $5 million donation and said they wanted to make a difference, which was uh, it was a lot of money, even for them and for us. Well, then uh, that that really was intimidating to me, actually, because I thought, wow, now I've really got to get to work. 
And, you know, she said, you're an academician, you've published research, you can do this. And she gave me a lot of encouragement. Uh, Kara Whitney's her name. And really, um, it's amazing, not just the money they gave us, but the support and encouragement. And she was right on target. She gave us a list of things that she wanted to do. And um, at the time I looked at the website, did some analytics. There, was, there were a couple of websites that were getting 100 or so visits a day. And we're over a million visitors a year now. And, uh, and then, you know, with that money, uh, we did institute a lot of research programs. We standardized the uh, first thing we did was standardize the uh, classification of hip dysplasia so we could compare apples and oranges. And that's become a national standard now, as I an mean, international standard is the hip dysplasia, International Hip Dysplasia Institute classification system. And we've had about 30 scientific papers from all of our work as a collaborative team. We put together a team of experts from around the world and kind of outlined a plan of tackling hip dysplasia. Rather than seek uh, grants, we said, here are the steps we need to do. We need to do step one, step two, step three. We need to standardize some things. And so we had a targeted approach to use their money. And uh, in addition to our work, what's happened is it, it, that has generated a lot of enthusiasm in the community. And people like you are providing information that's so needed uh, there are many organizations now, and we welcome them all. We, we think the websites and podcasts and things that are spreading information are so vital to this project that the word about hip dysplasia is getting out. And the, there's a massive amount of new research and new interest that kind of has really been kindled through this gift. So uh, I was just fortunate to be uh, the instrument in all of this. So you, you mentioned that obviously it's creating a little bit more awareness in the community. Lots more people are wanting to get involved in different forms of media and different forms of raising awareness, different information that's being created. Um, we're obviously coming up to Hip Dysplasia Awareness Month that is being coordinated with Miles for Hips as well. Um, and my good friend Nancy over there has uh, been wonderful in trying to coordinate all these different things to raise awareness. But I've also had questions coming in to from people to ask how they can get involved um, and how they can make a difference. Um, you know, obviously there's fundraising and things happening, but what can people be doing to help create awareness with hip dysplasia or are there any other volunteering things that people can do? I, there are a lot of things people can do. And, and I think, uh, Laura, you and Nancy are good examples of people that just took the plunge. And, uh, and we just can't have too many voices out there doing what you're doing because there are a lot of people in need. And, and uh, that's been the most overwhelming thing to me is how many people have this condition. It's the most common cause of hip arthritis. It's a reason for 10% of all total hip replacements. And you know, the, there, wasn't, there wasn't really a collective awareness. People thought they were alone, but there's a massive number of people that have this. And uh, so first I would challenge people to do the things that, that you and Nancy have done with come up with your own ways to be involved and do things, and that's difficult. But we've got a website um, on, we've got a, a page on our website, which is Get Involved. And it has some suggestions, including uh, being involved with Miles for Hips, and uh, they can volunteer for that. Uh, they can just talk about it in their neighborhood. I would say some things that they can do is, um, in addition to looking on our website and see how they can contribute, they can write their story put their story on our website. People read those things, they touch hearts and they help people get through difficult times. So whether your story is a positive story of success 
or one where you've been through a lot of trouble, it's it's really beneficial to post that story on on our website. Um, then, um, you know, we're we're thinking about having some activities like a a thank you squad, who would uh, people who are grateful that could write thank you letters to some of the donors that have gotten involved. Uh, so we're looking at ways to to expand people to be involved. Another thing is to talk to your doctor. If, if you have a young child uh, or a newborn child, look and make sure the nurses in the nursery know how to swaddle properly and ask your doctor if your hospital is using good help, hip healthy swaddling practices. And so mainly just being aware and an advocate and educator, follow you, uh, follow us on Facebook, become aware and talk about it because we don't want a mom to have her or anyone to have their first thing. Some the doctor says you have hip dysplasia and they go like, what is that? Yeah, we want them to at least have heard the term before it happens. Everybody knows what psoriasis is, but um, not everybody knows what hip dysplasia is. No, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that was definitely something that I've recognized as a really common theme from you know all of the people I've had the privilege to speak to is the sense of community and support that people are now being able to get from these different mediums. And I think one of the biggest problems, like you mentioned, people don't know what it is. People hear this term for the first time, they don't know what it is and they just feel completely alone. So yeah, by sharing your stories, being able to put them up on your website, where, whichever way you can share in any information is gonna help more people feel less alone. Um, yes just such a such a wonderful thing to be able to do so every time you speak about it you're helping somebody else to feel less alone so yeah thank you for that it was an absolutely fantastic point um to to cycle back around to so there is so much research that you've done in the hip dysplasia world um, and been involved in and obviously we won't have a chance to speak about all of it today but i did want to kind of ask about whether there's anything in the pipeline or going on behind the scenes to start thinking about how we can get more people diagnosed at birth, because this is such a massive issue around the world in terms of the statistics of people that are missed, um, the assessment methods that we've used for a very, very long time, um, and how cost is implicated in so many different countries as a reason for these diagnoses being missed. So I wonder whether you might feel happy to talk about that a little bit and whether there are any kind of progressions coming. Well, that's that's the, um, you know, that's really the what we're chasing now. And uh, I would say just briefly that uh, we started a registry which now is operated by Kishore Mulpuri in uh, Vancouver called the International Hip Dysplasia Registry, which doctors from all over the world are entering their information. And that's kind of looking at what our current standards are, what our current practices are, and try to refine and improve the outcomes of, of diagnosis and treatment that we are using today. And that's very necessary. But what, I, what the International Hip Dysplasia Institute, our research goals are what we call paradigm changing research. So we are really, uh, trying to use our money wisely to invest in, in research that's gonna really revolutionize the, the nature of things. And one of those is to improve diagnosis. Um, one of our studies showed clearly that the clinical examination, even when performed by experts, is inadequate. 
that's been known. And even Ortolani, when his book was translated into from Italian to English, which we had done, in his book, he says, this won't diagnose the most severe cases. And um, so we've been using a flawed examination technique for years and years. And so if, if it's missed, it's not really the doctor's fault. And ultrasound, even in countries with, um, with uh, you know, nationalized healthcare systems is not always employed because it's expensive, has to be done at six weeks of age, requires a return treatment, it requires a lot of technology and experience. And so uh, we thought ultrasound was gonna solve the problem and countries that employ universal ultrasound have decreased the miss rate, but um, it's just not technically possible. So the things that are coming in the pipeline, we, we are conducting some uh, fairly advanced research on listening to infant hips, believe it or not, just um, with a stethoscope and a tuning fork. Uh, if you put a tuning fork on a baby's knee and listen with a stethoscope, the sound of a stable hip is different from the sound of a dislocated hip. This is exciting. Yeah. And so um, we're really pursuing that. It, it sounds like you should be able to do that immediately. And uh, it's pretty, pretty accurate for detecting dislocation on one side because you can compare one side to the other but when you have both hips or mild displacements it's not as good but when you look at the technology of listening for warfare and things like that uh, I spoke with one group of uh, acoustical engineers they said oh yeah if you move a dislocated hip around it'll make a different sound than a hip that's reduced and so it's a matter of quantifying that and making it um, translatable so what we're trying to do is develop a little battery operated tuning fork and a stethoscope that could be carried anywhere in the world for you know under $200 and you could listen to babies multiple times during their baby so actual because uh, sound uh, vibration is transmitted sound and ultrasound is reflected sound and so there's a difference in the, the reflected sound like sonar would be used in the military and um, the difference between sonar and and transmitted sound reflect. So one thing we're trying to do is to try to find ways to listen to baby hips better. And we think that with modern technology, anything's possible. Uh, and so we, we think we're gonna get there, but we're, we, we're spending our research dollars on that. Another thing is that uh, with facial recognition software, uh, there are several places around that are looking at handheld ultrasound wands that you could put on a baby's hip and, and automatically recognize whether the hip is reduced or not. So with facial recognition, like they can, you can take pictures of somebody's face and then it can say, you know, you can take a side view or a front view and it'll say, well, this is, this is Laura, you know? And, and we wanna do that with hips too, so that you put the wand on and it, there actually are wands now that are powered by an I, by a personal digital assistant. So it can go into an iPhone and you can do bedside ultrasound. The trick is right now, it still requires some technical expertise to get the hip ultrasound properly. That would be more expensive, but more doable. And I think we're gonna see that in the next five years that there'll be an, an ultrasound wand that you just kind of put on the baby's hip and it'll, it'll show a picture that's either stable or not stable. And that could be easily done in the pediatrician's office or somebody else's office. So I think technology is gonna be the answer for diagnosis and making it inexpensive and widely available is what we're after.
Absolutely. Um, and and to be able to be done by a wider variety of people and technicians rather than it having to be a certain um, yeah. level of qualification, I suppose, to be able to to understand the, the exactly so battery operated and portable. So until then, I think we're still going to have late diagnosis and um, it's heartbreaking, but uh, it's time to stop that. Yeah. But the fact that we even have these things in the pipeline and things that are being worked on towards this goal is uh, hopefully, I mean, it feels like a massive weight off my shoulders just knowing that something's being done, but I hope that that brings relief to, to many people knowing that, you know, the, the awareness that people are raising, the donations and the fundraising for this research is going to make a real massive difference to not only something small, but this is, this is really fundamentally tackling the cause of so many people's issues because a lot of the people that I have the privilege to speak to are people that are struggling in adulthood um, as a consequence of these misdiagnoses and having to go through quite traumatic right. surgeries. Um, but if we can have all of the diagnoses being made at birth or you know in the first few months of life, then the amount of people that are later on in life going to be struggling is just going to be significantly reduced. So what I love about what you're doing over at the International Hip Dysplasia Institute is really tackling the cause of the problem. Right. And, and we're not, you know, obviously there's going to be stuff being done, you know, around the other stuff that can't be changed at the moment. But yeah. I love that we're addressing the cause of the problem and hopefully changing this for the generations in front of us so that they don't have to struggle with some of the things that some of us are currently struggling with. So it's inspirational to hear about and thank you so much for the work that thank you're you doing. well we're, we're actually working in three main areas one is prevention because we don't want adolescents to find out they've got dysplasia later either so that stable type of dysplasia which is a mild dysplasia in infancy um, with there may be some ways of proper uh, positioning infant practices that if we can show biomechanically and some other ways that we're working with some biomechanical engineers and some modeling programs to show that we don't know yet whether early positioning treatment really makes a difference down the road. But in Austria, for the last 30 years, they've uh, used positioning devices. And I would say prophylactically managing a whole lot of infants, maybe one in 20, when they find mild dysplasia on their universal screening. And they have decreased the, the arthritis level in the, in the young adult population and decreased the number of PAOs being performed. So there is a suggestion that early infant practices may make a difference in the, in the adolescent and adult population. So we're looking at possible prevention methods. We're looking at early diagnosis. Then we, we wanna get rid of casts and surgery for the kids that are diagnosed late. So some of our biomechanical research is, is now generating some material that would show how harnesses could be more effective mm -hmm. the pelvic harness was a great advance but it only works 85 percent of the time well we want it to work 99 percent of the time and we want it to work up to age 18 months so that kids don't have to go and cast now after 18 months there's enough deformity that they have to have surgery but if we can manage kids up to 18 months as an outpatient with harnesses and braces that are more effective then we wouldn't need casts and anesthesia and early surgery so um we're, we're really working on three fronts to do some things that, that uh, aren't even conceivable right now with what, we, what our technology is. It definitely gives us a bright outlook for the future. 
So this brings me really nicely actually to my next question. So um, there is a question that came in that says, what is the likelihood that children that are treated at birth having had hip issues as adults? Well, that's the certainly one thing we're finding is that even the successfully, the successfully treated uh, infants, about 10% of them show up with, with uh, dysplasia as a young adult. So we don't know whether our successful treatments stop too soon or whether um, it's a recurrence. Um, it's possible that the adolescent type of dysplasia, the ones that need the PAO and all that, that type, it's possible that that occurs during adolescence, just like teeth can get crooked or nearsightedness occurs or scoliosis develops. There are a lot of growth disorders that occur in adolescence where things don't quite finish outright. And uh, we're working with a fantastic group of researchers at the University of North Carolina that we hope to have that answer. Because if it's something that can be prevented from birth by, by more nighttime bracing or more effective bracing or just another six weeks of treatment, um, then that would be easy. If it's something that occurs in the 12 and 13 year old age group, then we need to look for other ways to prevent that. I, my own opinion is it's probably a little of both because we know that 10% that of the successfully treated pavicarnus kids will get uh, arthritis and recurrent dysplasia as an adult, but there's probably a subgroup that occurs during late adolescence. So it's probably a little of both. Okay. Um, so this question is really relevant to that one. So. Um, this one comes in actually from my sister who had dysplasia as well as me um, and was treated at birth. Um, thankfully hers was found really early um, and she had the harnesses as a baby and doesn't have any issues um, in adulthood at the moment. But she says, um, if I had the harness as a baby, what should I be doing as an, as an adult to make sure I'm hip healthy? Well, um, does she know whether she has dysplasia residual or not? never been followed up. Okay, well, I think, you know, that's that's really a question right now. Somebody who was treated as an infant, should they have an x-ray when they're an adult? Uh, and the general feeling is that probably after age 10, it doesn't hurt. If you've never had an x-ray after age 10, it doesn't hurt to seek an opinion and, and, and have an x-ray. X-rays have very low radiation nowadays. Digital imaging is almost non-existent, I mean, for radiation. And that would, if, you've, if you're concerned about it, then get screened mm -hmm. or just wait until you have symptoms. Um, if, if, but all, everybody, I think the advice for arthritic, for arthritis prevention is kind of the same everywhere is uh, keep your weight down, stay limber, do some exercises, you know, don't torture yourself. I wouldn't say distance running is bad, but low impact exercises are better. Swimming, cycling, those kind of things. Uh, if you're concerned, um, Obviously, we don't want to end marathoning in the Olympics and things like that because some people can go forever. Uh, we're also, some of our research is also directed at nutrition for uh, keeping joints healthy and keeping the articular surface healthy. And there, there is a suggestion that, um, that dietary boron, which is in fruits and nuts, and dried fruits and nuts, uh, that areas of the world that have more natural boron in their diet have a lower frequency of 
degenerative arthritis, that the cartilage surface becomes tougher. And so um, if, but, but you, have to, you have to lay that down when you're a child. So it may be too late for the adolescent. But there may be some dietary things we can do during early infancy that would help make stronger joints. That's really cool, especially, especially for um, my sister. She's just had uh, a baby, baby Otis. Um, hi, Otis. Um, she obviously had hip dysplasia herself, and he's had his hip, hips checked, and there's no sign of hip dysplasia. But again, ha having those little extra tips and knowledge to know that just by adding in some dietary supplements as a younger child, you might be able to make them less likely to have that yeah. um, healthy diet. A healthy diet, adequate sleep, exercise, lose weight, the things that everybody knows they're supposed to do. Yeah. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I've got another question that comes in about um, childhood dysplasia. So um, this comes in from a lady called Sarah. Um, and she says, should children who've had an open reduction and femoral osteotomy avoid bouncy castles and trampolines? If so, how long for? Uh, I would hope not. I think um, the objective of the treatment is to get the kids to be as free as possible and uh, not even tell them they had hip dysplasia and turn them loose. There's a tendency to be protective as a parent because you sure don't want your kids to go through it again, much less the first time. Um, but I think your doctor, in that instance, I would ask the doctor, some doctors have different opinions, but generally once a year has passed with anything, that uh, you're not going to change the outcome by restricting kids from things. Um, and, you know, I'd let them do gymnastics or whatever they want to do that they're capable of horseback riding, bouncy gyms, all those things. Um, and a child, particularly, uh, they should be able to resume full activities if things have gone well. I think that's really reassuring because this lady in particular said that she's had so many different opinions coming in. And it's almost this what we call analysis paralysis you've got so much information coming in from all these different angles that you just don't know what to do with it um or who to listen to when you've got all these differing opinions so i'm sure that's probably very reassuring to hear um for, for this particular lady um we we have a saying um if it's physical it's therapy so you know not physical therapy but if it's physical it's therapy so uh kids need to run and play and do those things Absolutely. They may have trouble, but I wouldn't blame it on that. Yeah. Okay. She has a follow-up question um, that goes alongside that this as well and says, could I also ask following both surgeries, would you also still expect a discrepancy in leg length when the child has has a growth spurt? I feel that this has happened to my daughter in the last month. Um, she had her operation last November um, and had a cast off in January. And she says, thank you very much. That is definitely an issue and it should be followed. Um, Generally, the leg length difference is most noticeable in the first few years, and uh, the growing child has a marvelous gift in that they can generally equalize those things. They can, uh, with further growth, they usually, uh, they may get a growth spurt of the operated leg, so the, the operated leg can be longer or it can be shorter after surgery because the the surgery itself can stimulate circulation on that side and make a growth spurt, or it can shorten the leg because of putting it back in position to make it short. But children can uh, equalize their legs as they grow. And um, obviously we don't, don't know how that happens, but it should be followed 
And uh, generally in a few years, it'll become apparent whether that's a problem or not. But shoe lifts and those things are not necessary to equalize things. Just let the kids run. There's a lot of, a lot of studies that show that even a leg length difference of two inches in a child does not cause back problems or anything. And, and you can adjust that as they get to be 10 or 12 years old. So, so. I, I guess it's, again, that's something that's probably quite reassuring for people to hear because you think of a leg length discrepancy, you wanna do what you can to fix it and accommodate. And you know, there's so much talk about posture in the press and social media and stuff these days that you're trying to rectify these things. But from what you're saying, it sounds like the body is a lot more intelligent than we give it credit for. And it's very, um, very good at trying to work out a way for us to function effectively, go around the things that are troublesome, try and rectify it itself. So it sounds like there's not one rule for when a, a bone is uh, operated on, whether it's always going to be longer because it stimulated that growth or whether it's not. It very much depends on the individual and the body will accommodate and do what it needs to do by the sounds of things. Right. And a lot of us have leg length difference and don't know it. So uh, a little bit of leg length difference is okay, but it, sh it should be followed after surgery because the, the hip dysplasia surgery can contribute to leg length difference. Mm -hmm. Now, um, the concern is, should you wear a lift? And, and we as doctors, we tend to take the patient, we stand them on both legs and we take an x-ray and the x-ray shows this difference rather dramatically. But when you think about it, you don't spend much time standing like that as a human being. Uh, you, we sit a lot, we sleep a lot. When we walk, one leg's on the ground, one leg's in the air. And if you, if, and when, even when you stand, 80% of your time is what we say is spent in single leg stance. And right-handed people put more weight on their left leg than the right one. So for right-handed people, the left leg is usually a little bit longer than the right leg because it's had more stimulation during growth and a good shoe man shoe salesman will try on your left shoe if you're right-handed because your left foot tends to be a little bigger than the right foot and so um we have differences in our body your face is not symmetrical and so running with the leg length difference is not an issue if you think about it when you walk along the street if there's a curb and you have one foot in the street and one foot in the on the curb you pump up and down. You don't topple over one side or the other. Your pelvis stays level. You kind of pump up and down. So when, when the leg length difference is great, it takes more energy to walk because you're, you're squatting and pumping and squatting and pumping, but it doesn't cause any problem with the back or hips. So a leg length difference only looks like a problem for the hips when you stand straight on both legs and take an x-ray. This just feels like a bit of a mic drop moment for me. Like, wow like the your dominant side your opposite leg is generally longer yeah i had and no idea we don't think leg length differences cause hip problems that's really really hip, hip no, problems. I'm desperate to do small research and reading um yeah. on this afterwards hip problems cause leg length differences and and leg length differences can cause weakness around the hip from surgery and things like that but generally uh it's not as big a problem as as people seem to think it is that's amazing. So don't automatically jump to going and getting the orthotics and the shoe raises and bits and pieces. Have a chat with your consultant about it first before going. Yes, right. Brilliant. OK, so we're starting to move into um, a little bit more of the adult hip dysplasia um, questions now. So moving away from the childhood um, issues more into adult. Um, there's a question that comes in saying, I'd like to know if there's been any studies done regarding the problems with 
um, for hip dysplasia that we seem to have with our hip flexors post total hip replacement. So it feels like a hip dysplasia specific problem that no one really talks about as a possible side effect after a surgery. That's, that's a very true and accurate observation. Um, people that have had total hip replacement for hip dysplasia have more complications. It's definitely more difficult to do a proper total hip replacement for someone with hip dysplasia than someone with arthritis from trauma or from some other cause. So um, my first advice was ask your doctor if he's done a number of hip replacements for hip dysplasia. And the more severe the hip dysplasia, the more experienced that physician needs to be. For the milder forms, it's not too big an issue. But um, we are finding, and, and there's a lot of interest in the uh, what I call the adult literature about hip flexor weakness after total hip replacement. And uh, it's kind of a hot topic right now because uh, the improvement, it's clear that all function improves after uh, hip replacement, that function improves, the strength improves, the ability to do things improves, even hip flexor strength improves. But after a period of time, that's the thing that you notice the most, that my hip flexors still aren't quite right. And whether that's the surgical approach or the type of implant or the way the implants put in or positioned is things that people are looking at. Um, the only thing we can say right now is to go to physical therapy or I think, I forget what you call it in Great Britain, but uh, go to therapy. therapy. <laughs> All right. And, uh, and try to find a therapist who can help you do some strengthening, but it may, it may be something you have to live with until we figure out what the cause is after total hip. It's not too common, but it's certainly common enough that people are noticing. Mm. So it's not always to do with the um, approach for surgery. It's not that in order to get in for a total hip replacement, you know, it has to be, you know, always pulled at significantly out of the way, or there's not always, um, you know, there's not always a cut through um, or a change of location. It's not something like that that's fairly consistent that we can put it down to. Right. It, it, it does seem to be more problematic in hip dysplasia patients, and it may be that their hip was not in the right place for a long time, and that muscle doesn't work as well, mm -hmm. or um, we're, we're just not sure, but it, it's a real observation, and uh, tell her to, we, we feel for her, we're trying to figure it out. Okay. So there's another question. So this definitely goes out of my order, but I definitely feel like it's relevant to bring it up. Um, so this one comes in from another lady called Sarah that um, says, if you have a hip replacement with dysplasia um, and femoral deformities, should a surgeon attempt to correct the deformities to within a normal hip? I say that with normal because what is normal? Um, <laughs> but um, within normal parameters, um, and what impact would that have on then retraining the muscles and your gait patterning afterwards? Or is it better to have a custom joint that's going to allow the muscles and the biomechanics to stay the same and have that custom joint done? So which which approach would you say is better? Wow. Uh, she should be designing research studies for uh, total hip surgeons because... She's a, she's uh, a fellow physiotherapist. <laughs> okay, well... She's right on target and, and no one knows the answers to those. And it's controversial right now. There is a debate. I don't do uh, total hip replacements, but I, know I follow the, the literature and the go to the meetings and there's, there is a considerable debate about whether it should be made anatomic or uh, positioned where it is. And, um, you know, it's gonna take a while before that gets sorted out. The, the beauty of today's electronic media is that there are registries um, 
we we started our registry in 2009 when it seems like you know 11 years ago but the internet and communication and spreadsheets and the ability to enter data and share data in huge volumes has increased enormously in the last 11 years so ours was kind of a groundbreaking a multinational research study that collected data from electronic medical records from around the world but it, there weren't any at the time to speak of um certainly not in hip displacement but now the registries are coming out of other countries are going to allow a lot of detailed analysis of this and so i hope that we'll have an answer in the next few years but there's there's no answer for these questions right now that i'm aware of but it's amazing that all these different questions are coming out and that you know they are in the backgrounds of the minds of the people that are doing the research right now that it's being worked towards so yeah I, I, i've loved all the questions that have come in they've just been absolutely fantastic yeah almost every month there's a new uh paper that shows how uh total hip replacement and hip dysplasia could be improved or again the classification of the one of the classifications goes a b and c and now they have a c a and c b and you do this in the cbs and this in the cas and uh and it and that's going to improve results absolutely so this next question that comes in is something that i get asked all the time um and seems like a really massive issue and it's about nerve damage part post-surgery um i've had so many people asking about this to ask your opinion on um you know how often do people get nerve damage afterwards is it normal um what can i do to prevent getting nerve damage is there anything that can be done to prevent getting nerve damage so i wondered if you could talk a little bit about those as a side effect of the surgery again these are right on target and the things that doctors are trying to solve and when the all of the pao literature has been looked at the the frequency of nerve damage is about two percent which is one in 50. that's that's huge. Um, I mean, if you imagine there are 33,000 airplane flights in the United States, and if if one in 50 of them had a problem, you'd be you wouldn't get on a plane. Mm -hmm. But um, the majority of them do tend to resolve with time, and um, there have been some recent publications that show uh, different surgical approaches and techniques that can reduce the nerve damage. So when you look when you say it's two percent, that includes the experience from you know 10 years ago to now. And the, the incidence of nerve damage now is considerably less than it was 10 years ago. So um, I wouldn't be afraid to have a PAO because of nerve damage. Uh, the people that have it, I would say, uh, be patient. Nerves recover very, very slowly. They recover at the rate of one inch a year, one inch a month, sorry. So if it's one inch a month, so if, if you've got a nerve damage and it's got a go 12 inches to re-innervate that muscle, it's going to take a year for the nerve to recover and re-innervate that muscle. So nerve damage can recover for a couple of years after surgery. So when we say that it's um, an inch a month, and we're thinking about the area, for example, that we might have that nerve damage. So say it was a, a left PAO and we have nerve damage down to our thigh, down towards the knee, for example, um, whether that's a loss of sensation or muscle activation or whatever that might be, or we're having pain into that area as a referred nerve pain. Where do we think about that one inch a month starting from? Is that starting from you know a spinal level or from where that nerve branches? Where does that start from? Yeah, it probably starts from the pelvis around the hip socket. And then, uh, but the muscle innervation would be about mid thigh. Mm -hmm. 
So the muscle that it's got to get to is about mid-thigh. And it's, it's the nerve is stunned for a month. It doesn't start for a month and then it takes a month. So mainly just be patient. And um, there's, there, there are some medications that can help if there's numbness and tingling and burning sensations and things. Like that. There are some medicines that help. Uh, the B vitamins are used for people with uh, neurologic damage from uh, chemotherapy and other things. Uh, diabetes can cause tingling and nerve things and whether the B vitamins help or not. One thing I would say about B vitamins, if you're going to try it, use the sublingual form because uh, a lot of it's not as digested as well in the gut as it should be or have your B vitamin levels checked. And um, that that might help. It's a, It's a stretch, but take the ones that dissolve into your tongue or the gummies if you're going to try B vitamins. Okay, that's really useful to know because I had quite a few people asking about the vitamin B12 um, to, to be taking as a supplement and whether that was something that had been researched, whether there was any kind of backing to it um, as a supplement to take alongside of the healing. So that's good to know to, to try the under the tongue or the dissolvable ones rather than the, the harder tablets, at least if you're going to give yeah. that a go. There, there are no good studies that show that it helps or that it doesn't help, but okay. doesn't hurt either. <laughs> we know that, yeah, if it's not going to hurt, then uh, it might help some people and not others. But there's there's so many different things outside of the, the medical world, talking about all of these other sort of more holistic approaches that can be taken. And not every holistic or conservative approach is going to work for every person. But if we know that there are lots of options to choose from that are safe to try, if we know that they're not all going to work for everybody, at least there are things that we can go through and we can give it a try and see if it's going to help and see which particular things out of our toolbox can work for us. Sure. It's a nice approach in addition to the medical side of, of the treatment that you're receiving. So that's wonderful. Good point. Um, so what can I do to prevent needing a PAO on my other side? So with this question that's come in, I'm not sure whether the person already has hip dysplasia on the other side or whether... And they have it on one side and they're trying to prevent perhaps it being diagnosed or something on the other side. But um, there's a fair conversation to have around people that do have bilateral hip dysplasia and having had one PAO done and not wanting to have the other one done. Um, and also about comparing your sides. I think there's a lot of comparisons with side to side and um, no two hips are the same. And I tell people all the time that you can't always compare one to the other because the anatomy and the process and everything about that um, time in your life is completely different. But what, what's your opinion on that? Well, I think that's, I think your advice is right on, on target, Laura, that um, it's, it's obvious that you want to compare one side to the other, but they're really not comparable. They're never comparable in terms of severity or um, surgery or any of the things um, I suppose if you saw two that were identical, it would be pretty remarkable. So they have different degrees of cartilage involvement or ligament tears. We were right and left-handed. Uh, we use our legs and arms differently. Um, so there are a lot of differences that, that don't really lend themselves to comparison. The, um, as far as prevention is concerned, unfortunately, hip dysplasia is a structural problem. Um, you know, the socket is not deep enough to support the femoral head and um, there's no way to grow a deeper socket or to make that structure change if your teeth are crooked they're going to stay crooked unless you have them straightened out um, 
so that's kind of where the the state of the art is and it's a debated question whether you have the surgery preventively or wait until you have some early symptoms and almost every doctor would say wait until you have some early symptoms because you know surprisingly there are people that go a long long time with mild dysplasia that don't hurt and so if you the longer you can postpone the need for surgery without damaging yourself it's good so i would say that each doctor each person is different and you have to follow the advice of a, an experienced physician to guide you as to when to have surgery on the other side because you you don't want to wait too late um, it's better to have your own hip if you're young than to have a total hip but if you're a little bit uh, let's say past middle age then the total hips are marvelous so uh, the, the main difference is um, you know your own hip will last longer and serve you better and has feeling. The bones have feeling, the ligaments have feeling and everything. And the, the total hip replacement, although you're not aware of it, there, there's no nerve feedback from the artificial pieces. I, I play tennis with people and um, they get back to tennis completely after a total hip. Mm -hmm. and But they're not aware that they don't have quite the position sense that they did ahead of time. There's there's just something of feedback from your own joints and bones that you're getting deep in your brain when you have your own uh, joint than when you have an artificial uh, substance in there. So you'd, you'd like to have your own if you're young enough, but the total hips are probably, they're just such an amazing miracle. Uh, and in my career, they weren't done a lot when I started as a medical student, but uh, they're, they're just been amazing. So I was having a um, discussion with my physio friend this morning about, you know, what is the what is the cutoff point between getting to a point where you can't sleep or work or walk, you know, to, to push yourself as far as you can with your own hip? What is the point that that becomes then detrimental? Because at some point, if you push it so far into that painful experience, you're going to lose your strength, you're going to you know, be stuck in this chronic pain loop that's then very difficult to, to get out of. There's, there's so many things that you're going to lose in terms of your gait training um, and your support systems that then make that rehab post-replacement then so much harder as well. So is there a, is there a guideline that you would perhaps give people or is it just so subjective that you can't put an answer on that? Well, uh, you've posed the question in a way that I've never thought about before, but uh... Now that you've made me think about it, uh, <laughs> I would say that if you're going to have hip preservation surgery, that you should do it early. As soon as you become a little bit symptomatic, uh, that's that's a signal. It's going to get worse. So um, as soon as you can have it done after you've noticed that it's causing any trouble at all, if you're going to preserve the hip, you should do it early. In contrast, with total hip replacement, you should wait as long as you can. Uh, because uh, you're going to replace everything. So you put up with that as long as you want if you're going to have a total hip. But if you're going to have hip preservation and a PAO, then get in there and get it over with and do it and, and enjoy your life. So it's either early or late, nothing in between. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool, though. That definitely uh, helps with the conversation that we were that we were having this morning. Um, so the next one is something that I think a lot of people have wondered for quite some time that 
Have there been any alternate treatments studied for hip dysplasia besides the PAO and the total hip replacement? Um, when would you predict that we might have an alternate less invasive treatment option? That's going to be a while. Um, I think the only alternative treatment option would be to strengthen the joint surface or repair the joint surface uh, because the gliding surface of your joint, the cartilage is what protects your joint. And there's certainly work being done with stem cells and, and biology and, and uh, the chemical composition of uh, articular cartilage that could strengthen the articular cartilage and make it last longer do cartilage transplants, things like that, but um, even injections and those kind of things. At the moment, there isn't anything on the, even the near horizon that's gonna, uh, that's gonna do that. There's no alternative or complementary treatment. Most of the uh, medications and, and over-the-counter things, uh, you know, avocado oil and things like that, that help decrease inflammation and decrease pain they don't decrease the, the degeneration process. So you can get help with pain and with inflammation, but if you've got hip dysplasia, it's a mechanical issue and it's gonna get worse uh, as far as we know, until we can find a way to strengthen the cartilage surface itself. So I, I think definitely about five years ago, there was um, some stuff in the press about the stem cells and the cartilage um, sort of injections and stuff for the knee. Um, and I think that's been sort of in the in the back of the the media for a little while about those developments in the knee. Um, but I didn't know whether there was anything kind of on the horizon for the hip. But um, it's good to know that that's not sort of something that's coming up in the next few years to hold on to. <laughs> yeah. Unless there's a breakthrough that that we're not aware of, it's it's going to be a while before it helps for the hips. Okay. So this next one has um, a little bit of a backstory to it. So um, there's a bit of context for this next question. So I hope that's okay to, to read this through. Um, so this next one says, my left PAO was over two years ago. During surgery, my nerves probably got pinched. I couldn't move my leg for weeks at all and properly for a few months. The feeling and most of my abilities are back now, but I have a hard time trying to run again because I need nearly double the amount of strength for my operated leg to pull it up. When the weather changes, every step hurts. Because of this one damaged nerve, I realize I can pull my leg further with massive willpower, but it's extremely exhausting and it hurts. I notice that it's getting better. It's excruciatingly slow, um, but my non-operated leg gets worse and worse. I'm waiting for the list for my second PAO. My questions are, will I ever be free from pain and able to run without being exhausted very quickly after one minute? And if my nerves got damaged the first time, is it more likely that they will be damaged again in the second PAO? Well, the answer to the last question is no, there's not, there's not an increased risk the second time around. And as I've said, the techniques and things have improved. So if she's seeing an experienced PAO surgeon, he's probably using a slightly different technique to, to protect those nerves. And there are ways to monitor them during surgery uh, that have been developed too. But um, that not everybody's using them, but it's possible. As far as the solution to the right one, there's so many issues there that it would be hard to make a, a reasonable comment, but um, that can all be investigated with EMG studies and this trip to a neurologist, and uh, someone should be able to get a handle on that and see exactly where her problem is and whether the muscle's starting to regenerate, whether the nerve's starting to come back, 
there are ways you can test for that and and answer some of those questions but um i i couldn't answer that without you know seeing a fair a fair extensive battery of tests and things so of course so um the, the advice there is to make sure that you're getting that that muscle testing that nerve testing done so that you can see what your potential is for whether that's activating whether it's not whether you can get more activation with you know strength and conditioning type work or whether there's anything else that needs to be done so push for some further investigation to understand that a little bit more about your specific yeah and and you know sometimes go to a different doctor good doctors don't mind if you get another opinion if it's a good opinion you know <laughs> so how common do you think that is for people to go and see multiple surgeons um and get different opinions and you know whether they will all work together to find a common ground or is it more common that people don't appreciate it what's the kind of feeling in the consultant world about that well i guess my feeling is that the opinions are more consistent than people might realize if 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 i if I see a patient and then they go somewhere else where they're going to have new questions when they go to that doctor and he's going to answer some questions that I didn't answer because they thought of new ones. Yeah. And so uh, when I would give a second opinion, I would always point that out that, uh, you know, you're going to get more information out of me than you did out of the other doctor because you've come to me and you already know what he told you. So anything I tell you is going to be new. Um, and I would say, look at the big picture that there are general similarities that some doctor may recommend surgery and another may recommend surgery with a slightly different incision or a different approach but they're both recommending surgery um, if you go to experienced physicians i think they're going to be aligned more often than not um, there is a tendency to think the doctors don't know what they're talking about but because they disagree but they they do tend to agree in a big in a big way um, so i would say keep that in in mind and not go with the go with the opinion that they're not going to agree uh, try to find out what the agreement is but on the other hand i will say that that a lot of this is very subjective and uh, there isn't a clear path it's not like fixing your auto where you know the alternator is broken and your battery's dead and you need a new alternator and and that's the problem um, you can there are differences of opinion and i think um you know it doesn't hurt to get additional opinions uh, and in confusing situations you just have to pick the doctor that you think has the most experience and that you trust the most and go with that one so, so i just wrote down a question um that i kind of answered there so what classes as an experienced surgeon in hip dysplasia because you can go to your local hip surgeon your local hip consultant um, and they might be a very experienced hip surgeon, but what would you say counts or classes as an experienced hip dysplasia surgeon or consultant? Well, um, you know, I, I hesitate to throw a number out there, but um, a lot of times those numbers are known and uh, generally it is related to volume. Uh, surgery, is, surgery is technical. So a surgeon that's doing, um, you know, maybe at, at least one a month of PAO surgery and has a background experience, uh, to me, that would be kind of a minimum number. Um, there are certainly surgeons who can do, do more with less, but uh, I, would, I would want to go to somebody that's 
doing a fairly high volume of PAO surgery mm-hmm. uh, or, or whatever it is. And then you can ask them, ask them, how many do you do? And, and if they, you, you can tell whether they've given an evasive answer or an honest answer. So this came up on a recent podcast episode of mine um, and we were talking about questioning your consultant and how difficult it is sometimes to question that person who, you know, has all these qualifications and you know that their time is precious and you're sitting there going, well, how many have you done? And you're like, do I have the confidence to question that person and of course we you know we have every right to ask those questions and have that information but I just I guess my question is you know as a doctor in this profession do you guys mind us questioning you about these kind of things um so that it can give maybe a little bit more confidence to people to say okay I'm gonna I'm gonna ask my consultant that next time I go in well a lot of it is of course how the question's answered and say, <laughs> asked and say you know have you ever done this before or um, you know, how often do you do this procedure? Uh, is is one way to go. Um, you know, how often do you do this procedure? Is this a common part of your practice? I think there are some things to do. You can ask, look around the waiting room and see if people are there for their headache or for their hip. Um, and I, I think most most physicians that are comfortable with themselves aren't put off by those questions. And they they actually would like to say, oh yeah, man, I'm, I'm, I do more than anybody in the Southeast United States, you know, you can check it out. Um, so I think we should, that information should be more public. And I'm, I'm sorry that it's not, that they should publish volumes and things like that. It is, it's available in cardiac surgery. You can, you can find out um, cardiac surgery volumes and outcomes and percentages of mortality and all kinds of stuff but you can't find that out for hip surgery. But mainly ask around. I think the usual things is ask around, but there are ways to ask your doctor and, and get a feel for his experience and uh, comfort level with what he's doing. Mm. Okay, thank you. Um, so this next one um, that comes in is, about, is more of a subjective feelings, um, but after a total hip replacement. And this person is asking whether there's any research regarding how people feel subjectively after a PAO um, or a total hip replacement, whether there's any difference between a hip replacement versus a normal hip, um, like with general you know, osteoarthritis as opposed to a hip dysplasia replacement. So subject, subjectively, how people feel afterwards. Um, I, I'm not aware of any direct comparisons of uh, feeling afterwards, but um, I would I would think that the subjective feeling after a total hip would be the same um, depending on severity. I mean, if you've had a very severe, completely dislocated hip that's been out for all your life, then that is not going to feel the same. And it's going to have a lot of uh, a lot higher complication rate. The muscles are going to be different than than others. So if you're feeling different after a, a total hip replacement from your hip dysplasia, then you probably are. Um, but um, but I think a lot of that can be overcome with therapy and, and counseling and coaching and, and things like that. Um, as far as, uh, I don't know if that answered the question. Did that answer the question? I think it's a very difficult question to answer because I think even if you had a group of 
10,000 people in a room that had had a total hip replacement, you know, whether they were dysplastic or not previously, the only thing questions that people are going to be able to answer is how they felt before and after. And is that really comparable to anybody, whether they've had dysplastic or non-dysplastic hips? So um, I think it's a it's a very difficult question to answer. Um, and it's, it's like the comparisons that I get when I ask people, you know, what's what's your pain level out of 10 for a, a bit of a subjective question? They go, well, I don't know, but how does that, you know, mine could be completely different. And I say, well, we're only comparing to what you feel in these different, you know, we're not comparing that to other people. Um, and that's, I suppose, a similar kind of approach. You know, you're asking how you feel afterwards, but does it matter or does it have any difference to you what other people feel before and after? So right. it's a... It's an interesting question and it's very difficult to answer, I think, but um, definitely interesting to, to have it discussed. Um, and I yeah. hope that's asked that question um, well, feels a little bit better about not perhaps comparing to other people, um, perhaps. Yeah, one interesting study that's just been started at Hospital for Chester Surgery in New York is uh, asking the patients ahead of time, what are your objectives and what do you expect to get out of this? And, um, and they, the preliminary studies show that when they say, I want to be this and this and this and pain free and walk better and all that. And then they ask them uh, two years later, uh, did we meet your objectives? What they're finding is that they're like, well, I still have some hip flexor weakness and I can't run and I can't play tennis. I can't get to the net as quick as I could. But all of their objectives that they stated before surgery were met. You know, they're free of pain. They can walk. They can go out with friends. They can dance. They can do all these things. So we have a tendency as humans to want to be better, which is good. And uh, I wouldn't say that's always the case, but the improvement after PAO surgery and after total hip surgery is usually so great that after a period of time, it becomes normal. And then you want, you notice other things. So um, I think we have to keep in perspective where we started uh, to some extent. Absolutely. Um, and this, this next question um, is, is something that's definitely related to that. But I feel from, again, another discussion with um, an, another physio friend of mine is that when you go in for your follow-ups post-surgery, um, there's a feeling within the community that when you're going in for your six-month checkup, you know, you're expect the consultants perhaps expecting it to be your discharge appointment. Um, from surgery um, and then you go into your sort of yearly follow-ups and things for maintenance and checkups afterwards but there feels to be a pressure to be where you're going to be and to have reached the limits of what you're going to reach achievement wise at this six months um, so is is that something that is felt by consultants that you know you'll have got the majority of your recovery by that six months or is it just something that you're just checking in to see where they are and What's the kind of feel behind that? Well, you're, you're hoping that they're meeting all the milestones and doing as well as they could. Um, but of course, you are looking for things for uh, little things on the x-ray that maybe the bone didn't heal quite right or the, the screws are working loose or uh, things that may not the patient may not feel. Uh, so it's worth keeping that appointment. And uh, they have shown that patients can also can over or underestimate their results because they may not be honest with their doctor about problems there because they don't want to disappoint the doctor. So uh, that happens too. And so I think the key on both sides is to be as honest as possible with what you're feeling, what you're going through, 
and for the doctor to do the same thing. Um, there are some studies that show that hip dysplasia patients probably do struggle a little more than other people, both before and after surgery, because it's, it's had an impact on their life, uh, either as a, first of all, they tend to be younger and it's had a bigger impact. It, it has implications for their children, for their sisters, for other family members. It's not just, uh, it's not just their hip. It's a whole range of things that they've been dealing with uh, that does make the, um, it does add a little bit element of stress both to the before and the after surgery. So there's a difference in uh, between hip dysplasia patients and other patients in regard to their uh, emotional status and, and things like that. So another reason to separate hip dysplasia surgery and results from other types of procedures. And we're seeing more and more of that, that it, we're, not, we're not being lumped. I, mean, I don't have hip dysplasia, but I, I say we because I feel like I'm part of the community, <laughs> is we're not, we're not being lumped in with all the other hip conditions as often as in the past. And that, that's going to be huge. There's another recurring theme that um, comes up within the podcasts that I do. Um, you know, it's that hip dysplasia feels sometimes more like a mental battle and a mental challenge yeah. to, to cope with than a physical one. You know, sometimes the physical thing, you know, you know that muscles can regenerate and repair and get stronger and, you know, your bones will heal. And, and so physically, that side of things feels like it's manageable. But because hip dysplasia isn't known by so many, this is something that we were talking right. about beginning of this conversation um, and it's happening to people that are younger than are perhaps traditionally seen as needing hip surgeries and you know, a lot of people do feel alone they're struggling with their mental health they're being socially you know feeling like they're socially excluded whether that's the case or whether it's not it's that feeling of being isolated and um, so the mental health issue is I, I think fairly massive and I think it's fair I can say that with a fair amount of confidence from the amount of people that I speak to that yeah the mental health side is is tough do you know yeah. do you find that from speaking to people that you've found that this is a, a big area within hip dysplasia to tackle yeah that's that's so true and uh, I think uh, part of it too is that um, you know there there has been a lot of increased awareness about hip dysplasia and a lot of specifically hip dysplasia directed study with the advent of the PAO and the, the awareness of the problems of total hip replacement and hip dysplasia and other things and um you know, it takes a while for that to be trained. And the, you may go to a doctor who says, you know, that he may not really have the latest on how to diagnose hip dysplasia from x-rays. Well, if he was trained even 15 years ago, you know, that might not have been a core part of orthopedic education. The orthopedic residents coming out now can all look at an x-ray and say, this is dysplasia, this is not. But prior to that time, uh, there weren't measurements of center edge angles and acetabular inclination and, and all these subtle findings of hip dysplasia and, and labral tears and MRIs and arthroscopy. We've got things now that um, I would say an older surgeon may not have learned or it may not be part of his thing. Now, the younger surgeons may not either, but, but you could go to a doctor and he says, I don't know what's wrong with your hip. And then you find out, we, we found that the average delay in diagnosis of hip dysplasia is something like 18 months from, and you go to three different providers before it gets diagnosed. And that's just because it's, it's the, the diagnosis and understanding of adult hip dysplasia 
is really a modern phenomenon. So that also throws people off when they go to the doctor and they say, he didn't know what it was. Well, it wasn't in his area of expertise, he, you know, so. I mean, there, there was a question that was, um, I think the last one on the list for today, and it says, why, why are display, dysplasia and PAs often misunderstood and not known about in the medical community? And you just answered that beautifully. I suppose that, you know, people, the technology is so different now, the resources to diagnose are so different now. And like you said, if it's not your field of expertise, then you may not have had the opportunity to have that training. You know, the, the medical profession is so vast and there are so many areas that people can specialize in. And if you think every person that trains to be a doctor has, you know, the choice of so many hundreds, if not maybe thousands of areas that they could potentially go in as a specialism. So to then specialize in specific hip dysplasia conditions, the amount of people out there that are going to be, you know, that focused to be reading all of the latest literature, be doing all of the latest practices, techniques, going to, you know, group study with other consultants that are doing that. You think how many people are actually doing that? Yeah, really. No wonder people don't necessarily know about it. Um, right. And it's very, and, and it's, it's actually a very subtle condition. I mean, the the x-ray interpretation of hip dysplasia can be very, very subtle. And uh, so you you can look at an x-ray and say, gee, that hip looks like it's in the socket. It looks fine. Uh, it's it's easy to be, it's easy to be fooled. And I, I found that it's very similar within the physiotherapy world as well. You know, there are, there are a few um, physios in the UK that are, you know, very hip dysplasia specific. Um, I can think of three off of the top of my head. But I did a an online course um, with this guy called the Hip Physio, and he's absolutely amazing. That's his tagline on Instagram. Um, and he did this course, and there were twenty five physios on there that were all interested in the hip and wanting to know more about it. And um, everyone was raising their hands as to who had heard or treated or had any kind of experience in hip dysplasia. And I was the only one. <laughs> I was like. But all of these are experienced physiotherapists, but, you know, to again have such a narrow area of specialty is so rare that all of those individual physios would have had their area of expertise that they were all specializing in. Right. What, what I love about and wanted to bring this back to your website is um, that on the International Hip Dysplasia Institute, you know, you do have lists of practitioners that are available in different areas that you can go to your website somebody who has made it a trusted area you know you know all of the people that are on that list you, you know their qualifications have been checked um you know it's a trusted area that you can go and know that that person has experience um through your website well thank you we've um i would also emphasize that there are a lot of good doctors who are not on our website because we have tried to recognize those who have who have contributed beyond uh, the practice of taking care of patients. So as they've done research, they've done advocacy, they've educated, they've um, they've really advanced the field of hip dysplasia and not not just uh, given good clinical care. And I can assure you that there are a lot of good, excellent practicing orthopedic surgeons who know a lot about it, about hip dysplasia that don't publish and don't do research and they spend all their time being educated and uh and i i would you know i would go to one of those in a heartbeat 
so we're we're trying to um, we can't recognize all the good doctors that that can do this. And fortunately, the number is growing in leaps and bounds, and the amount of knowledge that's being taught at scientific meetings at the national level, international level, hip dysplasia is now a very hot topic. So I think we're going to see more and more awareness and more and more. Uh, uh, physicians in the community who can easily diagnose hip dysplasia and think of it. It's a matter of thinking of it. And, and the, di the, the difference that's been made in 10 years is just huge. And I, I go back to the Whitney's um, and I don't know whether we were just part of this development that was occurring because I think we were, but I also think their donation and, and getting IHDI out there and, and getting collaborators together and doing all this has helped spur a lot of interest in, in, uh, being more aware and people can do this ask your doctor if if you know somebody that has a hip problem and they're going to a doctor and the doctor can't figure it out then tell them did you ask your doctor about hip dysplasia and you know sometimes it's just a matter of suggesting that as a possibility it's a two-way street isn't it you know as as a patient going in if you have the awareness that there is a differential diagnosis and a possibility of it being hip dysplasia and you can then put that idea into the mind of the doctor, yeah. then that is just as effective as that, you know, that doctor knowing about that as a differential diagnosis and giving you that information. So the more people that hear about it, that know that it's an option for a diagnosis, the more we can, yeah, get right. that diagnosis a little bit, a little bit sooner. So yeah, exactly. the, the awareness is not just, you know, to spread within the medical professions. It's the more that we can get this out to, absolutely well to the you know the quicker we can get these diagnoses made yeah. so well said yeah <laughs> so I, I i know that i'm uh, taking up perhaps a little bit more of your time than we had planned but i wanted to know if there's anything else that you wanted to add or discuss for us today um before we start wrapping things up no i i think we've covered a lot of ground but i'm just so optimistic about the future of hip dysplasia and the other thing i would say is that this is a curable and preventable problem. It's a mechanical problem. Uh, it doesn't require pills. It, you know, if we're gonna eliminate this, um, it's something that's, it shouldn't require pills. It shouldn't require surgery. It shouldn't require any of that stuff. It just, as you said, it needs early diagnosis and good preventive management. And I think, I think this is something that should, we should make a huge impact uh, globally and the, the burden of disease of hip dysplasia globally is, is enormous. We haven't even talked about third world countries and places where dislocations are common. And uh, we got a call from Afghanistan. They've got 200 babies that are walking age with hip dysplasia. They can't even operate them all. They can't find any of them in the birth area. They just got 200 kids that were asking for a surgeon to come help them do this. There are places that are doing five and 10 and 15 operations a week on babies with hip dysplasia. So we have an occasional missed diagnosis in our society, but this is a global problem. Every culture has hip dysplasia. So, so this, keep up the good work. This is something that I know that um, Keisha is doing a bit of work with as well, yes. with networking the global availability, yes. resources, treatments, um, and awareness that, you know, trying to, to raise and spread this to a worldwide um, population. Because like you said, you know, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, a lot, a lot of those countries have, like you said, a slightly earlier diagnosis rate and treatment rate, access to treatment rate. 
um, but the work that's being done with the HIPPOPE and International Registry to start making progress um, and make this a worldwide equally accessible treatment progress is is something that's just so wonderful and if anybody um, wants to know a little bit more information about that um, please go and follow the Hip Hope Network on social media they have a wonderful event coming up this Sunday Sunday yeah this Sunday um, that um, is recognizing some wonderful hip legends um, including uh, Dr. Bastian <laughs> um, You've you've also been referred to me over the last week as the Beyonce of the hip world. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sing well. I wish I could sing. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's uh, if you are interested in learning a little bit more about it and learning how you can raise awareness and just know a little bit more um, about the hip dysplasia world, then please go and have a look on their Instagram and sign up for the event on Sunday and learn a little bit more about how you can help in this community. So I'll close this out now, but I really, truly appreciate your time. Um, Thank you, Laura. For just being such an amazing interactive part of this community. It takes you know, a lot of time out of your diary to have these conversations, but I know that so many people appreciate the time that you've taken and the questions that have been answered. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Laura. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week again with another inspiring and incredible guest. If you'd like to be on the podcast and come and share your story, then please just send me an email at laura at helpforhipdysplasia.com. You can also find me on Instagram at laura.rutterford or by searching help for hip dysplasia and send me a message on there. I really look forward to speaking with you. We'll see you again next week. Thank you.